0: listen, if your faith has not truly changed you, where you have a new pulsating drive to live out the righteousness that God has imputed to your account, then you have every reason to question whether or not you have real faith. Hello,
1: and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogey. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are currently in our study of the book of James chapter 2 on faith, and Pastor Carl reminds us that a real faith always brings a changed life, but a faith that does not work is no more alive than a body without a spirit. Let's join Pastor Carl to find out why.
0: And he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens. And count the stars if you're able to count them and he said to him so shall your descendants be then and this is what we've just seen quoted he believed in the Lord and it was reckoned to him as righteousness what an incredible account God says I'm going to bless you from your offspring is going to come one who will bless all the nations of the world, not just the Jews, this new nation that I'm starting with you, but all the Gentiles, all the Goyim, all the ethne of the world shall be blessed as well. Why? Because one Savior is going to come for all people. So, Abraham, that's wonderful, but I don't have a child yet. Step outside look up at the sky. You ever been out? I remember in Kansas, I camped out in the middle of the night driving to Colorado to go to an institute in biblical studies, and and I looked out. I'd never seen before after so many stars in my whole life. It just seemed like there was a million stars. Abraham, you see all those stars? That's what your descendants will be like. Now, by the way, you should put out in the margin Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8, because there the Spirit of God gives us some divine commentary on what he heard that night. It was not just... Of faith that he was going to have a lot of stars, but it went back again to the promise that God had made earlier, that through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. Why? Because Messiah is going to come through your loins. And in Genesis, in Galatians 3 and verse 8, it tells us that on this night Abraham had the gospel preached to him. And there's only one gospel, and it concerns the death, burial, and the resurrection. And Abraham believed God's word, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, was that a faith of words? Or was that a faith of works? You don't know until 40 years later. So, fast forward to Genesis chapter 22. Just a few pages from where you're at, Genesis chapter 22. Isaac is already born, and I want you to notice uh, he's no young man, no little boy, as we'll see in a moment. He's a young man, and in Genesis 22 and verse 1, now, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, his name has been changed at this point, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Now, if you're reading from the old King James, it does not say God tested Abraham, but God tempted Abraham. Abraham. And that's because the word test did not exist in the 17th century. And so the reader had to discern from the context, is this a solicitation to evil or is this a test in my life? Well, we know from what we've already read in the book of James that it's not a solicitation to evil. But today that's the connotation of the word "tempt." James will write, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. God never tempts man with evil. So today it would be better to render it test. God does test us. So verse 2, he said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I will tell you what an unspeakable idea what an incredible request and some will even slander God and accuse him of violating his own will and some will just write off the Bible and say it's so inconsistent it says this over here it says this over here it can't be true And the liberal critic will be quick to say, how can a God of wisdom and mercy and justice and love command Abraham to offer his only son as his sacrifice? Especially since God will later write through Moses and Leviticus and Deuteronomy that child sacrifice practiced by the Canaanites was to be absolutely abhorred. Now to point out that God stopped Abraham from carrying out the process does not really solve the problem. Because how could God in the first place give an order that was immoral? So to hold that God could ever command one of his children to do wrong would be wrought with difficulty. I think several factors need to be considered when we think about what God asked Abraham to do. Number one, it's very easy for us as parents to project our own emotions into the text of Scripture. And so the idea that if God asks you to take one of your children and to offer one of your children on an altar somewhere as a burnt offering absolutely would be to your abhorrence, the thought repulses you. In addition, it's it's very easy to look at this situation from the vantage point of the culture, Remember, God condemned what the pagan Canaanites did, just as he condemns today. We don't offer our little babies to the God of Moloch, but we offer them in the abortion mills of America. And our new president has made it even more free this week by some of the evil new orders he has outlined. Listen, I pray for our president, you should too, But when any politician does what is downright evil, I'm going to speak out against it. So here's God. How could he ask Abraham to do this? Well, number one, God is not asking Abraham to offer his only son, and he's his only son. Obviously, he has Ishmael, but he's his only son in terms of the son of promise. That's how it's being used. How could he ask him to offer his only son? Well, God's not going to ask him to offer it to some Canaanite God. He's going to ask him to offer his only son to the one true God. And second, it would not be wrong for Abraham to offer his only son. If you come to that conclusion, then to be consistent, you must also come to the conclusion that it would be wrong for God to give his only son, which is what he did. Isaiah the prophet describing what the Messiah would accomplish. And Isaiah the 53rd chapter, all of us like sheep, Have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Do you know that a lot of Jewish people are forbidden to read this section of Scripture? It is an eye-opener if someone will study. I got involved in Isaiah 53. I thought I hadn't studied it in a while, and I started almost a year ago. I have over 300 pages of commentary I've written on it, and I haven't even finished the chapter. It is so rich. All of us like sheep have gone astray, Each of us has turned his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him, on him who, on him the Messiah. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He's going to see his spiritual offspring. Why? Because God's going to raise him from the dead. He is not going, as Psalm 16 indicates, he's not going to allow his flesh to undergo decay. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So in this sense, God does not require Abraham to do anything that God would not do himself. Indeed, we will see the command that God gives to Abraham is not simply to test Abraham's faith, but as the writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews 11 and verse 19, to provide a type of foreshadowing of what God is going to do through the Messiah. A type is an Old Testament picture of a coming New Testament reality. So God says to Abraham here, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Yitzhak, Laughter and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I tell you. And the man never opens his mouth. He simply obeys. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And we read in verse 4, on the third day Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place that that God had dictated. He saw the place from a distance. Can you imagine how he felt As they looked at Mount Moriah, then in a few hours, he would watch the son whom he loved, the son of promise, be consumed on an altar in fire and turned into ash. Now notice the source of his confidence in verse 5. And Abraham said to his young men, these servants, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go yonder, and we will worship and return to you. I want you to circle that little first-person pronoun, we, here in verse 5. Abraham's confidence is based on faith, and faith is always based on the Word of God. He says, in essence, we will worship, and we will return to you. The boy and I are going up, the boy and I are coming down. The words worship and return are first person plurals in the Hebrew text. And so the NIV 84 renders it, we will worship, we will come back. The Lexham English Bible renders it, we will worship, we will return. Now, wait a minute. I thought God said to offer him up as a burnt offering to reduce him to smoke and ash. How could Abraham say, we are going to return? Because Abraham came in faith. He knew that God cannot lie. He knew that God never contradicts himself. And he had clung to a promise that God had made in Genesis 21. Through Yitzhak, your descendants shall be named. God promised that he would make a great nation out of Isaac. And that meant that God had to raise Isaac from the dead. And that's where he got him from the deadness of Sarah's womb and from the deadness of his own body when neither of them had the capacity in which to procreate. And so he believed in faith that God was going to raise him up. He was the son of promise, and God is not like a man that he would ever lie, Moses writes. The writer of the Hebrews says it's impossible for God to lie. Paul said, God cannot lie. Verse six, it gets more emotional. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took his hand, in his hand, the fire and the knife. And the two of them walked on together. Can you imagine? They walk up that hill, the torch, the wood, the knife, knowing that what is about to happen. Again, don't get your theology from some Sunday school coloring book. This is not some little lad eight or ten years old. Nothing could be further from the truth. Now, the Jewish people immediately connects Genesis 22 with the start of chapter 23, where you read that Sarah dies at the age of 127. That would make Isaac 36, possibly 37. They say he was 36 years old, based on their tradition as recorded in the Mishnah, that he died at the age of 36. We do know that it appears from Genesis 21-24 that some considerable time had taken place Because the text says there in Genesis 21-34, Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. It also appears when this event takes place from Genesis 25 and verse 12, Ishmael is already married. In fact, he has 12 children. So the point is, is there some time that has lagged? And so he may have been 19 or 20, as Pastor Larry pointed out last week, he might be 36. By the way, some Christian theologians think Jesus was 36 when he died because Luke says he was about 30, where if he would say, 32 maybe 33, and his ministry is three and a half, some count it as four years, depending on the number of Passovers, then that would make him about 36. Well, in either case, it doesn't matter. What matters is he's not a little boy, and you don't have to be a rocket theologian to figure that out. By what is taken here in the text, he took the wood, and he laid it on Isaac's back. I carried firewood in my life, and I don't like to carry it uphill, and I never give it to my little grandsons and say, hey, let me load you up. He's no little boy. My father, he said, verse seven. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Hey, dad, we've got some wood, we've got some fire, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham knows that Isaac is the sacrifice. So he puts him on the altar. And he lifts his knife to plunge it into him. And by the tense of the verb that Hebrews 11 gives us, he had already determined and made up in his mind that he was going to plunge the knife into his chest. But an angel of the Lord comes, the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, and he stops him, one of the pre-incarnate appearances of the Messiah. Now, by the way, Hebrews 11:19 again tells us that Isaac was a type this is a rich passage of scripture, we could spend an hour on it. Think about Isaac, he is a miracle baby. He was born in a womb where from a human point of view, it was an impossible birth. Even so, a Messiah, a virgin will conceive. A baby is going to be born and the baby's name will be called Mighty God, the prophet said. Jesus also was a miracle baby without a human father, a virgin conceived. Isaac carries the wood on his back up Mount Moriah. The Lord Jesus carried the cross on his back. Isaac willingly laid himself on that altar. His daddy was an old man. We could say as much here about the faith of Abraham as we could say about the faith of Isaac. He could have easily stopped Abraham. What are you doing, dad? Have you gone nuts? He let him bind him to that altar. Jesus said, no one will take my life from me. I will give it. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. This is a picture not only of the father giving the son, but also of the son giving himself. Isaac does not resist the will of Abraham. And will you notice the place it took place on Mount Moriah? Mount Moriah is the same place that David offered that offering that stayed the plague. And God said to Solomon in that exact same place where David offered that offering there on Mount Moriah, I want you to build my temple. And the Lord Jesus, he dies on Mount Moriah. We call it Golgotha. The typology is perfect. It's not by accident we studied on Wednesday night. The sacrifice that represented Messiah was always done on the north side of the altar. Why? Because north of the temple, at the peak, 110 feet above that sacred stone on which Abraham was about to offer Isaac, is the place of the skull, outside the gate, where the Lord Jesus was offered and crucified. And what happens? A, a substitute comes. A ram gets caught in a thicket and wears the thorns around his head. Just like the thorns are around the head of our Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And we read that God told him to go and sacrifice his son. And the text says in verse four, it's not filler. It was a three days journey. Why does God include that? Because in the mind of Abraham in faith, he was as good as dead from the time he left, but he knew that God would raise him on that day. And so it is not by accident that the scriptures say the Messiah died, was buried, and was raised from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, wonder the Lord Jesus could say, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and he was glad. Now, I could spend hours on this, but we'll never finish James. But think about this for a moment. All of a sudden, Isaac disappears from the pages of scripture. And when do we see him next? We see him next when he's about to get a bride. And after our Lord disappears and he ascends to heaven, when are we going to see him next? When he comes back for his bride, the church. Friend, every single word in this book is inspired. No man could have ever thought this up. Now don't miss the point that I want to make. Was this a faith of words or a faith of works? It was a faith of works. Abraham's works confirmed that what he had said 40 years later in heart, his heart was absolutely true. So James looks at Abraham. Look at verse 21 of James 2.21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Yes, he was. That's Genesis 22. That's 40 years after he believed. Now his justification is vindicated. Verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. That's Genesis 15. And what sense was the scripture fulfilled? Not in terms of getting salvation, but in terms of proving salvation. And so now he quotes Genesis 15, vindicating that Abraham's faith was real. And so James is able to say here in verse 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now let me conclude quickly. In verse 25 he turns to another real life illustration. And it's even in some respects even more fantastic and the contrast couldn't be starker. He goes to Rahab. Abraham's a Jew. She's a Gentile. He's inside the covenant community. She's outside of it. He's highly respected. She's highly rejected. He's a saint. She's a streetwalker. But both of them end up in the hall of fame of faith in Hebrews 11. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot. How do you like to have that as your handle? And by the way, that handle Rahab the harlot, it's stuck for centuries. I mean, how would you like to go around with a hand? What's your name? I, I'm Joe the drug addict. Hey, I want you to meet my friend Joe the drug addict. What's your name? I'm Joe the pervert. I mean, listen, this is a handle that she carried for throughout her whole life. And the writer of the Hebrews uses it. And the word harlot is the Greek word porne. It means immoral. She wasn't running an inn there. She was running a den of Prostitution. But assuming you know nothing of Rahab's biography, you would at least know from what James provides in this portion of scripture that we're talking about a faith that a prostitute had that is identical to the faith a patriarch had. Look at verse 25. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Now, does this mean that her receiving the messengers saved her? Unthinkable. But again, James is speaking of a faith that vindicated her. And if you remember from Joshua chapter 2, when she heard the report from the Israeli spies of what God had done and how he had supernaturally delivered them out of the land of Egypt, the Bible records that her heart melted. And in Joshua 2.11, she said, For the Lord your God, he is God, and heaven above and on earth beneath. That was her confession of faith almost 40 years earlier. And 40 years later, after the wanderings in the wilderness... God vindicates her faith, and she is willing to hide the two spies. And God says, she's got the genuine item. And by the way, you read more of her biography as you come into the New Testament. She marries, by the way, the Old Testament records a man named Salmon. And Salmon and her have a baby by the name of Boaz. And Boaz marries a woman, a Gentile, named Ruth. And they together become, because Jewishness is determined by the dad, they become the great-great-grandfather of King David. And so she shows up in the genealogy of Christ in Matthew chapter 1, because you see, Jesus not only came for sinners, he came through sinners, and so the need for a virgin conception. Then finally, the argument as it is applied. The argument applied, verse 26. Stay with me, I'll be done in two minutes. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Let's suppose we have a corpse up here and we want to help this corpse to be at its very best. And we bring in the cosmetic people and they dress them up beautifully. We put the nicest suit on them. We want to give them a little culture so we play a little, play a little Beethoven and Bach. and We want to educate them so we bring in... The PhDs, in fact, they award him a doctorate. Question, has he changed? Not one bit. He's in the same place. He's dead. All those things you do on the outside will never give life. James's point, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also, so also faith without works is dead. A faith that does not work is no more alive than a body without a spirit. Because the moment a person dies, the spirit leaves and it never returns. So don't you believe these crazy out-of-body experiences? Maybe they were oxygen-deprived, but they weren't dead because it's appointed for a man to die once and then comes the judgment. Listen, I'm afraid for some of the people, even a few here this morning, and some that are listening to me online. And you would do well to heed the words of the Apostle Paul when he spoke to the Corinthians because he was not convinced that, though they had the right confession, that they had really been regenerated. And so he says, test yourself to see if you be of the faith. And listen, if Satan can convince you that you are saved when you are not, He's got you right where he wants you. And James is writing this little letter and he's saying, listen, if your faith has not truly changed you, where you have a new pulsating drive to live out the righteousness that God has imputed to your account, then you have every reason to question whether or not you have real faith. Jesus doesn't go for a ho-hum example, but for the most dramatic example, people who preached in his name, who cast out demons in his name, who did miracles in his name, and all three are authenticated in both sides of the Bible that even an unbeliever can do, and he will say, I never knew you, depart from me. What do you mean, I never knew you? I thought you're the omniscient God. You don't know my name? I never knew you in terms of a relationship, because this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God in Christ whom you have sent. I never knew you because you had an empty faith. You had a demonic faith. You had a profession without possession. You had reverence without repentance. And the churches in America, and I'm talking about the evangelical churches, are filled with people just like that. A real faith produces a commandable life. And if Christ cannot command you, my friend, he has never saved you. Now, Holy Father, as best I know how I've preached this text... And I pray today for someone listening who has a phony faith. And may you work and stir only as you are able. May you bring them to genuine repentance. Thank you for the wonder of this book that you inspired. No man could have ever thought it up. How grateful we are for its nourishment. Thank you that it challenges our heart it causes us to love you more. We know faith is like a muscle and that as it's exercised, it grows. So Lord, increase our faith
1: as we walk with you. We ask in your name. Amen. James illustrates for us that a real faith in Jesus Christ produces a commandable life. If you would like a copy of today's message in its entirety, go online to searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program James 006. Remember, you can support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling or you can give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays an important role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl will continue his series on James. Please join us then as we continue to search the scriptures.